Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Hey, my friends, my last six-week course of the year is approaching. It begins on Monday, October 30th. This six-week course is beyond anything you've experienced. We meet four days a week. I will teach you the ins and outs of healing trauma and stress through somatic inquiry, somatic experiencing, and whole food nutrition. You also will have a weekly sound healing, which will help you access your body and get the work to digest on a physical level instead of just a mental one. We have Q&As, we have practice sessions, and we have full-time six-week support via our circle space. If you want to join this next six-week course, go to holisticlifenavigation.com and click on the course. You can join the waitlist, and on September 28th, you'll be invited to register before the public. For more information, visit holisticlifenavigation.com. We're currently running a contest on Instagram, and we'll be giving out five full scholarships for the upcoming six-week course. Here are the steps on how to enter. First, rate and review this podcast on Apple or Spotify. Second, take a screenshot of your review and share it to your Instagram story. Include a link to your favorite podcast episode and tag us at holistic.life.navigation. This information will also be posted on the Instagram account. We'll be accepting entries until September 20th. This helps keep the podcast ad-free, so thank you. This person talking about things that people didn't talk about out loud, um, talking about trauma, talking about religious trauma, talking about not fitting in in a world um, that wasn't meant for us, that wasn't made for us. And, And so sometimes I think just knowing there's someone else out there who is unapologetically themselves and who is going to talk about the things that we're not supposed to talk about, um, having that can be life-saving, can be life-changing. And that's what she was for me um, when I was younger. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, 
and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. Welcome, Noah Michelson, to the podcast. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is so fu- this is so fun because um, so I, I like to tell people the way I find them, like the webs I fall into, right? So I Tori Amos's Ocean to Ocean came out, and like always, I, the first thing I do is go onto YouTube and type in Tori Amos interview 2023, right, or 2022, whatever the year is, and yours was the first one that popped up. Mm. And I thought, oh, cool. I never, never, I never saw this guy before. I, I haven't seen her be interviewed here. And then I realized I did. You did that book interview with her, I think, right? On yes. YouTube. Yes. Um, but to see you two in the same room, it, it was different. So I watched it and I thought, this is the first interview I've seen in a long time where the person deeply knows her lineage of work. Mm. It wasn't like the typical religious questions. It was like so much deeper. And yeah. then I went to your Instagram and there was a photo of you wearing a Hounds of Love shirt. And I thought, I need to meet this guy. Uh-huh. And, I, and I didn't know how. And then I go to the vegan theater and you come out of the, the the bathroom stall I'm about to go into. And I was like, I haven't met anybody in a bathroom in so long. <laughs> <laughs> and then it happened to be you. So that was yeah. just super, super magical. So I wanted to thank you for just your openness and wanting to connect. Definitely. And I, I really like when the universe just sort of hands us things like that, you know, and, and when that happens, I always think like, let's see where it goes. So um, I was really excited when you reached out and and I love talking about Tori and I love talking about the ways that she's impacted my life. And um, so I was like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Well, so what excited me was most people listen to this podcast. I have this joke that I started this whole company just so I can talk about Tori Amos because <laughs> whenever I get the chance, it's like, that's where it goes. But I think what it really is behind her is, and similar to what I've read and, and heard you say now, it, it's it's what she did for our bodies growing up, like what was unlocked, right? Through yeah. her, her words and her way. And yeah. I just wanted to read what you wrote. I love this line from your article. You wrote... Her song spoke to me about my own life in a language I instantly understood. It was like every light in every gloomy room in my body suddenly came on. Mm. Just tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in Wisconsin um, in the in the 80s and 90s, and I was a very gay kid. Um, and that was not an easy place or an easy time to be a very gay kid. And so um, when I was in eighth grade, I guess it was uh, eighth or ninth grade, um, Little Earthquakes came out and I was hurting really badly. Uh, I was suicidal. Um, I was bullied. I was tormented. I feel like bully is such a, uh, it's an easy word to throw around now, but but that's really mm-hmm. what it was in the purest sense. Um, and all of a sudden, there was this woman talking about these things that no one ever talked about in my life, much less saying about it on the radio or on MTV. Um, and so it really was this moment where I thought, oh, this woman knows me. I know this woman. Something reached out. A hand reached out and said, um, you aren't alone. And I know that sounds cliche. I know that sounds corny. But it was real. Um, and so... I immediately just fell head over heels into her music. And, um, you know, I have the story. The first time that I met her was 2001. And she was touring. And I, um, she does these meet and greets where you can see her before the show. But I didn't know how to get to them. I didn't know what to do. So I was writing her these letters. And I would send these letters to the venue where she was going to play ahead of time. And every letter said the same thing. It said, I was a big time fag in a small time town and you saved my life. And the song that I really connected with was Space Dog, Mm. um, where she sings about, don't hear the dogs barking. These bombs can't even hurt you. And I just thought if I can make it through high school and I can leave this town, um, if I can stop hearing the dogs barking, if I can not let the bombs hurt me. I can, I can live. I can literally live. 
So I sent her these letters and I had no idea if she was getting them. I put on the front, please give this to Tori Amos. She plays this date. And I go to this meet and greet and I'm all the way at the back. There's probably a hundred people there in Minneapolis. And she's, I can see she's signing things and talking to people. I have no way to get to her. And she's about to go back inside to the venue to do sound check. And I just scream. This is such bad manners, but I scream over everyone's <laughs> head. And I say, Tori, where is Space Dog? Because she hasn't played it yet. She spins around. She looks me dead in the eyes and she says, are you the strange little boy who's been writing me the letter? Oh. And I said, it's me, it's me. And she just gives me this huge smile and flaps her arms like their wings and, and floats back into the venue. And that night, she plays Space Dog for the first time in ages. She plays it with this intro. Um, and she says, I got this letter. And it said, I'm a big time fag from a small time town. Here you go. And again, that was this unlocking where she had recognized me and she had recognized the journey that I had been on. Um, and it was like, I could take a breath sort of. And it's just for her to honor that, um, it, it was so meaningful to me. I, I'm just having chills the whole time you're saying this because I yeah. remember I remember sitting in my bedroom as a 16-year-old closeted queer kid yes. and hearing that he, that to me it was it's an it's the most ecstatic part of Space Dog when all those backing vocals come in. Yes. And and that beautiful piano riff is just like constantly repeating. I remember the feeling of something in me just expanding yeah. and and wanting to be in that world instead of the world I was in. Completely. It, right? It was like a lifeline. It was like a tether. Completely. And and it was, again, like I said earlier, it was this person talking about things that people didn't talk about out loud. Mm -hmm. um, talking about trauma, talking about religious trauma, talking about not fitting in in a world um, that wasn't meant for us, that wasn't made for us. And, mm -hmm. and so sometimes I think just knowing there's someone else out there who is unapologetically themselves and who is going to talk about the things that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, having that can be life-saving, can be life-changing. And that's what she was for me um, when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah, I just love it so much, especially when you said trauma, because I've, I've learned that what was so special about her work, more than any artist I've ever come across, Mm. is this really visceral, like real-time processing of her own trauma via the song. Yes. It, like in one song, she can say something like, I have my rape hat on and I yeah. always couldn't accessorize. Like she, it's like campy, it's irreverent, it's sacred, it's painful. It's all these things in yes. two lines. And I was like, wait, they can all live together? <laughs> what? Because <laughs> all my parts, like probably yours, were compartmentalized in these little cubicles in my body. And every song of hers would kind of like break those boundaries within myself to myself. Completely. And, and right, in order to, to survive, I think so often we have to disassociate, right? We have to compartmentalize because if we have it all at the same time, it's too much. It hurts. It's, it hurts too hard. Um, and so we do, we splinter. And we become all of these different things. And, and so to be able to synthesize and put them back together, to have these tools to be able to say, no, exactly. Like you said, they can all exist in one body, in one life. That is really powerful. And it's not something, you know, as much as it's an unlocking, as much as once you find this person or this thing that lets you sort of conceptualize that, that's really important, right? But it doesn't happen in one moment. It doesn't happen in one day. It doesn't happen in one year. If you've experienced a kind of trauma that I think a lot of queer people have, um, or if you experienced trauma because of sexual assault, all these different ways, if, because you were in the church, there are so many ways to experience trauma, right? And some people have multiple ways that they experienced it. Um, you, you're on a journey throughout your whole life to try and deal with that. And if you're lucky, if you do therapy, if you find other tools, if you know, you have ways to deal with it, maybe you can, um, escape it at some point, or you can, um, synthesize it into your life and use it in a way that becomes useful. Right. Um, but it's, it's a long road. And I think that that's also what Tori was telling us as well, is that this is something that she dealt with her whole life and she's still dealing with it. She's still making music. She's still talking to the muses and trying to make sense of things. And I think that that's a great model for how to live is that it's not gonna be over. 
we're always going to be trying to deal with it. I think one thing you just said that, you know, when I, I'm a trauma therapist now, and as I was mm-hmm. training and learning, and I was thinking of my teachers, people always talk about their, their teachers, and mm-hmm. my teachers weren't the typical trauma teachers. It, it was Tori Amos, and it was Buffy St. Marie, and it was PJ Harvey, and it was like, they yeah. were my teachers. Yeah. And I didn't even know it because they were teaching me the somatics of trauma healing way back before we even had the term somatics of trauma healing in our vernacular. And it's what you just said. It was this bearing of, okay, I'm here. I survived. I'm speaking about something that seems unsurvivable that's happened to me. I'm doing it through song. So it's beautiful. It's Mm. scary. It's like all these precious moments coming through from the pain Mm-hmm. And it's really transmutation is what th- this this form of art that we're talking about, especially with Tori, this transmutation of this extremely painful, shameful experience that becomes, even as she performs it, like this strange, erotic, beautiful healing experience, you know, from a wound that was the opposite. So without her even saying that, which she said these things, but without her even saying it on stage, it, it it's like osmotically, it happens to your body just watching right the experience yes. of the song unfold from her body yes. and so I'm, and boys for pele for me was like the shamanic journey of my childhood that mm-hmm. was the album that rocked me inside and out like i couldn't get it. i still i'm still not over it it's been like how many years <laughs> i'm still recovering and so I, I guess i'm curious with you like where you you seem so sensitive and intuitive and wise like how let's say Tori and these musicians for you open these parts of you to yourself. And, and mm-hmm. like you said, that opening isn't the healing. That's just the meeting these parts. Then there's the integrating them. Yeah. What's your, how, how have you personally practiced the integration of these parts that got opened? Yeah. I think that the, that's really important. Um, and thank you for asking that. Uh, I love that you were talking about transmutation and, and this idea is, um, and Tori will say this too, is that, the songs are the starting place, right? When you experience them and you have the physical experience of them, whether you're listening to them in your headphones or you're seeing her play in front of you, that is the starting point. And then you take what she's giving you and you bring that into your own life. And then the transmutation is also part of that. How do you take that in? How do you use that? And so that's something that was really important for me as well. And that you also don't, you know, it doesn't stop there then you, at least for me, this is all going to be about my own journey, but mm-hmm. um, it was about me talking about my own life then. So I became a writer, right? I started out as a poet. Um, my background's in poetry. And so I started writing poems about my experiences. I started speaking my experiences into the world because someone else, in this case, Tori Amos, but so many women, mostly women, um, in my life at that time um, gave me the strength and and sort of the ropes. They showed me the ropes on how to do it. And so um, I continued, the, the wheel kept turning. It came in, I, I learned from, from Tori, and then I said, okay, I've had these experiences, I'm gonna push them out into the universe. And then other people can hopefully hear what I've said. And um, you know, that's my job now. I'm, a, I'm an editor at HuffPost um, where I, help people tell their own stories. And so I think telling your story is one of the most magical and powerful things that you can do is saying your truth out into the universe. Um, And so, yeah, that's what I think it is. I think that it it starts with the song, it starts with the music, and then you take the reins from there and you ride it wherever you need to ride it. And hopefully other people come along for the ride then as well. And then they tell their stories. You answered a question of mine as you were sharing that. I was going to say, how at the Huffington Post, how do you, how do you do this magic, right? And you just said it. You edit to help people bring their stories into the world. And I'm assuming you see a lot of responses from that. You see people being changed by someone else's bearing of their experience. It is huge. I mean, you know, we run all kinds of stories about everything from sexual assault to people realizing that they are, you know, asexual. And I get these emails from people and they say things like, you know, I've gotten, we ran a story from a woman who wrote about being asexual, right? And how she didn't know. And people write in and say, I didn't know there was a word for what I am. This is mm. what I felt for my entire life. And I thought I was broken inside. And now I know that actually I'm not broken. Like, can you ask for anything more than that? 
Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have authors who write for me and, and they tell me the same thing. They get emails from all kinds of people and, and these emails say, thank you for telling my story too. And I think that's important. One, seeing yourself in the world. If you don't see yourself anywhere, you don't feel like you can be in the world. But two, I always hope, like I said, that then those people are also telling their stories. That's mm -hmm. how we keep it going. That's how we change literally the material world around us is by being who we are in the world and other people saying, oh, I can be myself too. That's mm -hmm. that's huge. Mm -hmm. I'm just feeling it in my heart as you're saying it. And I'm thinking of the, the courage it takes people to publicly speak about something that, you know, was once unspoken of. It um, is not a small thing. No, not it's at all. Really not. There's this deep generosity to it. Mm. Like in the moment is terrifying to do it. You may, it may not feel generous, but then you realize once you've done it, how many people you have illuminated and helped illuminate parts of themselves just from you naming something, right? Definitely. And, and I also don't, um, I don't blame anyone if people feel like they can't do it. Right. Um, this, it, like we said, it's not an easy thing to do. And so um, people are at different places in their journeys. You know what I mean? And, and just because I could do it at this age doesn't mean you can do it. Just because, you know, my life is very much an open book. I've written about my suicidal ideation. I've written about being sexually assaulted. I've written about sex. I've written about trauma. Um, I've spoken about it publicly for, you know, 25 years. I don't think that everyone has to do that but you can make small little inroads into living your life more authentically. And I think sometimes maybe it's just talking to a friend about, mm -hmm. about That's something right. that happened to you. Um, you know what I mean? It, it doesn't have to be you getting on Huffington Post and, and talking about it. It doesn't have to be you getting on Instagram and posting about it. Little tiny things can have huge impacts on your life and on other people's lives. So this is where my mind goes with kind of a spiritual practice experience that music taught me and it's yeah. really like you just said it's not about how many people see it it's about if you see it yeah and, you know i remember watching um are you a Joni mitchell fan yeah so there's this a documentary i think it was 2002 or three called woman of heart and mind and it's this okay. documentary it's fantastic and i remember watching it and, and that was the the piece that propelled me into my bedroom pick up a guitar and just start strumming i didn't know what i was doing but i was just kind of feeling it and it was this life-changing moment for me, which I've, I've talked about a lot publicly of why, but what it did actually, was it created this way for me to excavate these unconscious parts onto mm. paper, into song, and then witness them, like hear them back or sing them out loud or see, the, see them writing on the book, on, on the page, like Tori with the muses. It, it's another being for me. It's very animistic. It's not just me writing. It's like something coming through. Yeah. So when you say even talking to a friend, what's so healing about this to me is the manifestation of these parts, like revealing them to yourself is what starts to heal and help you relate to them. It, yeah. Is that, was that your experience as well? Very much so, because I also think, you know, the other side of this is we have to talk about shame, right? And I think that right. so often the way that shame is allowed to exist and allowed to um manifests itself and, and allowed to spread is because you don't talk about it because we've been told that this thing is something that's dirty, something that's illicit, something that is secret. Um, and, and so I think the more that you, like you said, even if you can recognize this thing and admit it to yourself, mm -hmm. that you weren't to blame, you aren't the one who caused this thing to happen, that you deserve to be here that in and of itself is hugely um i think it can be really healing just to take that first step and say what happened to me was not okay and i'm not the one responsible for this um letting yourself off the hook and and sort of taking that back that's that's where it starts and so i think it can be a little tiny thing once you do that, I think it can have huge reverberations in your life from there. Yeah, so much so much is coming up as you say that because I, I teach this piece a lot about what was done to me affects me, but has nothing to do with me. Like it wasn't my That's fault. I'm not responsible for it. My my only responsibility is responding to what's in me now because of it. But it isn't me. It isn't my, yes. my fault. And how incredibly liberating that was, because I also experienced sexual assault and I grew mm -hmm. up in the church. 
So mm-hmm. Tori was like the perfect you know, goddess for me to stumble upon. And when I would hear her songs with my headphones in, she was saying the things that I was not even ready to say, right? And yes. I didn't even know she was saying them. I was so dissociated from those events that yeah. when I listened to Me and a Gun or Blood Roses and these Hey Jupiter, these really like tangible visceral songs, they touched the deepest place in me that I couldn't even touch. And I didn't even know why. It took like mm-hmm. 10 years to even know why. But there's that thing of witnessing the artist who is very much our modern day shaman, you know, channeling things that we are not ready to face. Yes. Yes. And taking that on and, and doing it publicly and um, allowing us to then sort of take part in that, that it, it is shamanistic. It, it, it is a ceremony, right? It's a ritual. Yes. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you, on the one hand, you can enjoy music or enjoy um, an album and just, you know, listening to it on a Sunday afternoon in your rec room. And that, that's great. But you also have the ability to really travel somewhere and, and to be part of this ritual. Um, and, you know, I talk to Tori about this stuff all the time. And, and, I, and I ask her things like, does the song that you wrote in 1992 that had this very specific meaning to you mean the same thing to you now 30 years later? And she will say, you know, she kind of goes different places. On the one hand, she will say, yes, the experience that I was documenting in that song exists in the universe wholly as it was then. But it's not, we also change in the way that she relates to it changes. And the thing I love about her as well is that she really wants people to meet the songs where they are, but also where they are, where the person Mm -hmm. is. And so Mm -hmm. she wants it to mean whatever it means. One song, you know, we've talked about um, is the song Icicle, which I've always thought was about Tori Amos or Tori, quote unquote, being in her bedroom while there was a prayer group happening downstairs and she's masturbating and she's taking back this power and she's saying, um, I don't need the patriarchy. I don't need the Christian God. I have myself. So powerful. If you talk to Tori about that song now, she will say that song also might be about the person upstairs in the bedroom is being sexually assaulted while mm-hmm. this is going on. Not a reading that I ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, and I think she now has that reading because someone spoke to her about being molested and how that song spoke to them. And so she's able to hold multiple meanings and multiple readings at the same time. And she encourages us us to do the same. So if a certain line means something to you, it might not mean that to Tori when she wrote it or today, but mm. if that unlocks something for you, then she wants you to take it and run with it. And, and I love that about her as well, that she's not, she's precious about the music. The mm. music is precious to her, mm. but she's not precious about the music in that thing. It can only mean this one thing, or mm-hmm. you have to take it in this way you take it how you need it to be mm-hmm. and let that be your guide in, into what you want it to do for you. I think that that's hugely powerful. It's also part, it's part of her humility and part of her shamanism because she never takes credit for the music, but she knows it's these ancestors, these energies speaking through her. So she doesn't yep. own them. They just come through and then she gawks at them herself with all of us. And I yes. love that <laughs> so and much. The, not only does she not take credit for the music, she doesn't take credit for what the music does. I mean, I've told her before that she literally saved my life, that she's the reason, part of the reason that I'm still here on this planet, that her music is what kept me in my body um, because it showed me that there was hope that I could have a life. And she will look me in the eyes and she, I know she's done this to so many people and she will say, you saved your own life. I didn't do it. And on the one hand, that's a lot for her to take on. She doesn't, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't want that responsibility either. But on the other hand, she's being really gracious and and really saying, um, I'm glad that I could provide this for you, but give yourself some credit. This Which is, this is totally true. It's, it's the it's, most honest thing she could say instead of the so ego saying, yes, I did. Exactly. And it's really beautiful. And, and it also allows the person who has survived something to uh, acknowledge that survival. And that is also a really healing part of dealing with trauma is also saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I got through this and I didn't think I would, and I maybe shouldn't have, but I did. That, I did. That's, a, that's a huge thing. 
I mean, I see that a lot in the work I do where someone will learn something I taught them or they'll feel safe by my presence and they'll say, like, you saved me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have that same reflex of reminding them, like, I, I had nothing to do with your saving. I had I had something to do with connecting with you. But that thing yes. that happened in you, that's your amazing sovereign life force awakening. Like, that's so beyond, it's even beyond you. You know, like, yeah. when, when I listen to those songs still, but especially the first time I ever heard them, and I felt that thing unlocking, I wasn't even doing the unlocking. Like, something in me was unlocking. So... It's such a spiritual experience for me. It's beyond the human idea of I'm healing myself. It's like something otherworldly is happening through my body. Completely. And, and acknowledging that is, that is a holy thing. I think that is a holy. sacred thing. Yes. So beautiful. I mean, that's what, yeah. I, that's what I always wanted church to be. And so mm-hmm. when I started listening to her work, I felt like I was finally going to church. And yes. amazing enough that, you know, Boys for Pele was in a church. So there was yes. like... I, it's. I think one thing I really loved about her work, especially especially the Boys for Pele record, was how much ecstasy and viscera mm-hmm. was happened inside of a church. Because when I was in church, I would want that, but I grew yes. up Catholic and it was so repressed. So yes. to see someone just writhing in a church felt like yes, that's that's the experience I had in church, and I didn't know how to let that out. Completely, and and also it. Um, tethers the church back to its pagan roots, right? That's I mean, it's right. the same thing too. When you think about what happens in a Catholic church, especially, but but in, in all churches, like those ceremonies, those masses, those rituals, those are based on centuries, millennia old pagan rituals that that were stolen. And so she was really connecting that, and she was saying, "I am a woman singing for my life in this church." Mm. Um, and she both, you know, she she tethered it all together and she exploded it all, all in one place. Like, I went mm. to that church in Ireland mm. a couple of years ago. And just to be there and, and know what had happened. Um, and the thing I love about her, too, is that, you know, she has a lot of um, love for the Christian God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yep. she she has a relationship with the Christian God, but she also has a relationship with Osiris and with Freya. And you know what I mean? And she, again, she's saying all of these things can exist at the same time. Yes. What do we do with them? How do That's we great. understand them? And, and I think that that sort of multidisciplinary approach to life, to the cosmos, um, especially in pop rock music no one else was or is God. doing that it's just I know. Singular. you know I what think i mean the, like when i think of the 90s especially that time period when she was coming through it was like yeah. this weird moment where all these misfits were able to slip through the crack into yes. like popular culture for like eight years before <laughs> everyone realized they were a true misfits and then they got super poppy again but it was really magical era of somehow sneaking in i don't know how they snuck in so well they were like Trojan horses, right? Like <laughs> really you have were, these yeah. great songs that you also can just completely rock out to. But then you're like, oh, wait, she's singing about Mary Magdalene and the bloodline. You know what I mean? Yes. Like you're just like, okay, yes. you can, you, it's choose your own adventure. You can mm-hmm. go as deep as you want to go. But if you're going to go deep, you're going to go deep. You're and really I love deep. That. I love that about her. Yeah. That's a cool way to look at it because it's it's like these songs are so ambiguous. They allow yep. you to titrate your own experience. Like when someone gets ayahuasca, the shaman titrates yes. how much they can handle. It's yep. like I can I can like become little Amsterdam and yep. be completely flooded. Or I can just like enjoy like the rhythm of the beat. <laughs> it's exactly. like I can go as deep as, and little Amsterdam 2023 girl, don't get me started. Like oh, that insane. rendition is in, I was just like soaking it in, in the theater that night. Yeah. But um, yeah, I love how you can really, without even knowing you're doing it, and maybe that's all music, but really titrate your own experience, how deep it takes you. Completely. And and I think that that um, that is one of the reasons there's so many people who are so deeply invested in Tori Amos as a figure, as a musician, as a shaman, um, as a woman, uh, because she has said things and taken people places that no one else has. And Mm. you still see people 30 years later who are still going to multiple shows on every tour, you know, who who are just standing for her for life because Mm. 
of how much mm-hmm. she's given them and continues to give them. Yeah. So what what's like when you think of your early years of exploring her, what were the songs that really unlocked parts of your vertebrae and your body? Yeah, Crucify. That was the first one, right? That was the first video I saw. And again, um, I was raised uh, part Lutheran, part Jewish, and I went to Catholic school. So I had so much religion in my life. And at the same time, my parents were both atheists. And so I didn't have any religion in my life. But but being so wrapped up in those worlds and and, you know, I literally wrote letters to God in middle school asking him to make me straight. So that relationship with all that shame and all of that um dissonance that that she's singing about and crucified that that was a huge one space mm-hmm. dog like i said that became my motto don't mm-hmm. hear the dogs barking um that was a huge part of it and then pele um i was 16 when no i was 17 when pele came out and i knew this guy he worked at atlantic records and he sent me a tape of Pele a month before it came out. Like on one, you know, he had dubbed it onto a tape and he said to me, I, I will be fired if anyone ever knows that I sent this to you. Because this was before even things were on the internet, really. Like yeah. you didn't leak. You actually had to get a tape in the mail. Um, and I remember putting it into my Walkman and just being like, what is this? The first my time I listened, too. you know, I don't, I didn't even quote unquote like it the first time I heard it. It was mm-hmm. no different than Cornflake Girl or God. It was these harpsichords. It was these dissonant sounds. And I was just like, I can't make sense of this. And then immediately I just, it was on repeat, right? And um, Caught a Light Sneeze was just the song. I remember the first time I heard it, I was in my car and it was a snowstorm and it came on the radio. And the minute I heard the beat playing, I was like, this is the new Tori. I just knew it was her immediately. Um, and and that song is still a song that um, really, there's so much life and pain and, uh, but also it's revelatory and mm. it's, um, it's her claiming her life in a way, you know, after, after so much has gone wrong for her and her saying, uh, no, some of this fire is mine. Some Mm -hmm. of this blood is mine and I'm going to use it for good. Um, that was so powerful. And, and just to be a 17 year old queer kid again in Wisconsin and, and to, to understand that things can go really wrong um, and then you can come out of that alive, maybe covered in blood and with the flames around you, like in Carrie at the end of, you know, the horror movie, Carrie, there might have to be some destruction that happens, mm. but destruction is not always a bad thing, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think mm-hmm. I learned that from Tori too, is that sometimes we have to go through the fire. We have to get, you know, to jump in the volcano and get spit out of the lava in order to, um, be who we're supposed to be. Yeah. You know, I, I think besides Diamanda Galas, mm. I think Tori was the first person I discovered that destroyed herself on stage. Yes. Right? Yes. Like like song through and on record, like song through song. There mm-hmm. was this like I'm gonna I'm gonna let this part of me die in front of you and I'm gonna record it and then I'm gonna blossom through the death. And yep. she does it every time she performs. It's even at this age, it's amazing to see her still do it in a in a new way. Yeah. Uh, but that when it's funny you said destruction because you know, little earthquakes under the pink, she's building this tapestry. Mm-hmm. And, and boys for Pele to me, she took a knife, and just ripped through the tapestry and like broke it open and pulled the threads apart and let it get really messy and dissonant and strange and long and kind of like i'm not gonna hold your hand here the way i have before you're gonna hold my hand (laughs) and you know and that's how i felt listening to it like the harpsichord would feel so violent and strange in my belly yeah like the bull sample on professional widow it was like so grotesque and sexy at the same it was like so strange these sounds yeah and to me it's like one of the best albums in history of any album that's ever been created it really is. And I also have this theory that that album could only exist at that time. Yes. And we're lucky that it was made. I mean, Tori was at the height of her popularity when she made Boys for Pele. She had yep. just had Under the Pink come out. 
critically a huge success. Commercially, God and Cornflake Girl were huge. And basically her record label said, you know, and, and when she did Boys for Pele, first time she produced by herself, she went and did and made exactly the album she wanted to make. And I think that um, she couldn't have made it at any other time. She was at the top of her career and she just said, I'm going to do exactly what I need to do. It's going to be weird. It's going to be crazy. Um, a lot of people might not like it. I don't care. And she and I have talked about this as well. I mean, after Pele came out and it was critically maligned by a lot of people, didn't do well commercially. And when I say that, I mean, it was still top of the charts and, and she sold out her tour, but it, it wasn't the commercial success that Under the Pink was. And that really hurt her. Um, and, and I think that if Pele had done, quote unquote, better, I don't know what the next album would have been. I think mm -hmm. From the Choir Girl Hotel is a great album, but mm -hmm. it's commercially a lot safer in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And um, I think we're lucky that Pele exists and it's a time capsule. You still listen to Pele today, 25 years later, it sounds still as weird and as fresh yes. as it did in 1996. And uh, it, it exists outside <laughs> of time and space. It, it, this, it really it, does. You know, it, it's kind of like as a musician, I have my archetypal albums mm -hmm. that when I'm making an album or making a song, I'm kind of invoking them. That yeah. one is always fucking being invoked. It's like yeah. I can't not invoke Pele because it, like you said, it doesn't exist anywhere. I've no. never heard any artist get close to it. It's so its own, you know, one of the few artists I've heard that have taken me into a world like that is Coco mm. Rosie. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with their work, but they have a couple really special albums that take you to some timeless space. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that that's a very rare gift. Um, rare. And, Super you know, rare. and the other thing too about that album is that Tori was spending so much time with the mythology of so many things. I mean, if you, if you, get deep mm. into Pele mythology. She's talking about how the, you know, so there's, um, I don't know, 12 or 13 main songs and then five little songs that sort of connect it like Mr. Zebra or Agent Way Orange. down. Way down, exactly. So she'll talk about how those pieces, those, those songs are actually representative of Osiris being torn apart and Isis having to go and find the body parts of Osiris and put him back together. And each mm. song represents a different part of Osiris. And like, she was doing so much mm. work with um, just the mythology and, and sort of the history of um, magic, of shamanism, of um, femininity, of the sacred divine femininity. And so, again, like we were saying earlier, you can just enjoy how beautiful putting the damage on is. Mm. Um, or you can also go to a different level and be like, she was talking about some shit here. Mm -hmm. This is heavy. Mm -hmm. And you get to decide how deep you're going to go. But um, it's funny when I see people, you know, online, people love to do these things where they say, you know, let's rank the Tory albums. I'm just like, I don't know how you can because Pele is just up here. And I love all of her albums. Untouchable. It's untouchable. But it's untouch it, just, it just achieved something that I don't think we're going to see again or we will rarely see again from anyone. It is, no, no. You know, if you know, people haven't heard it, they have to. Well, wait, as you're talking more and more, even how you say the different body parts of Osiris torn, torn apart, yeah. um, it, it really is this destructive element. And yeah. even in her career, there was a destruction of like, I'm going to destroy the path I'm on that everyone's expecting me to go on the commercial yes. path. And I'm going to... And, the, you know, again, the only other artist I can think of in my in my lifetime that really did that well was PJ Harvey transitioning mm. into White Chalk. Mm. There was that moment of like, uh -huh, her was so commercial and so like everything we love about PJ. And then yeah. suddenly White Chalk, we're like, what the fuck is this? Right? Yeah. And right. it was so, it was this rebirth and this destruction and all these themes of like abortion and miscarriages. And it was yeah. like a miscarriage of her own, you know, lineage of these records coming out and what to expect of her so it's i'm saying that because they they jostle my body you know yeah. these untouchable records that are just living in their own world their own spirit really that they don't connect to like the ego of the artist to what you expect they're completely they're bigger than the artist aren't they they're so outside of the artist 
Exactly. And, and I don't know that, you know, they would say that they expected that to happen when they were making it. Right. right. I think that they were so just deep in the creative process um, and they were making the album that they needed to make. Mm-hmm. And then it just took on a life of, of its own. And um, that's exciting to me. Like, that's mm-hmm. what I want art, art to do. I don't think art can always do that because that is that is such a huge undertaking. But when it does, ah, that's what I that's what I live for. I love Me those too. moments. Yeah. Well, I've come to really notice that what oh I love somatic work so much as as a trauma therapist more than talk therapy is I get to witness those cycles of destruction and rebirth mm-hmm. in like a session or in a group, you know, practice with people of yeah. these parts just leaving and dying that we were holding without knowing and then something new coming in. It's so it's it's kind of what I've always been chasing. It's why I, mm-hmm. I chased so deeply into Boys for Paley. I mean, I had to listen to that album like a thousand times at least, not even being exact, you know, dramatic, like from 8 a.m. Yeah. to 10 p.m. all day, just listening in a, a fugue of, mm-hmm. of that because I was chasing that destruction and birth cycle that is so ancestral, but our modern, you know, societies have cut that off and have tabooed it. So Completely. I, I, I want to ask you is, one of our closing questions or maybe the closing question what what is your current like what where is your current death cycle how do you hold the death in your own life of yourself and your ego and things around you what does that look like yeah um so it's interesting i started practicing witchcraft about a year ago like earnestly um and so i have a daily practice that i do and and so much of that about is is about sort of um recognizing myself my my place in the universe and how small that is and also mm. how big how big that is you know and how again those can exist both at the same time and so this idea of of i like the idea of sort of constantly um creating your own death and your own rebirth again and what can come out of that and and how you do that and and what you need to get out of that, I guess, in a way. And I, I think that can be as simple as sort of recognizing that maybe um, you aren't the center of the universe, that that you, that everything that you do might have an impact on other people's lives, but also that like, it's not always about you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There's some humility in that. Mm-hmm. And I think that humility can really be a guiding force at the same time, I also think it's about taking responsibility for the things you do, the things that you put out into the universe, right? There's this idea of like the law of three, that, that whatever you put out, you'll get back three times. So even if you don't believe that, and not all witches do, but not all people do, but I like this idea of just being conscious um, and cognizant of how does my, how do my actions impact other people mm-hmm. you know there, i think we learned this idea of like you know the butterfly effect and one little tiny thing that you do can actually can have ramifications way down the line in other people's lives and i so i just think sitting with that sometimes and thinking every morning and thinking about what do i want to do today how do i want to show up in my own life and other people's lives what kind of impact could that have and going from there, and I think just being quiet with yourself and giving yourself the time to really do that, um, it, it, I think it changes even like the neurons in your head. When you mm-hmm. start being grateful for things, when you start um, looking for connection and synchronicities in your own life, um, I think beautiful things can happen. And just sort of being present and saying, um, I do have a choice in, in these in, in some things. And when I do have a choice, I'm gonna try and choose good. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. Is mm-hmm. is when I get to choose, what do I choose? And what is that gonna mean for me? And what is that gonna mean for the people I love? And what is that gonna mean for the people I don't even know? And how is it continued to emanate from me from my choices? Mm. Well, you're such a wonderful, beautiful soul and you have so much wisdom. And I just love sitting with you. And I, I hope people will find more of your work. You're listening to this who aren't familiar with you. Can you tell them how to do that? Like, how do they read your writing? Sure. Yeah. So I, I edit um, HuffPost Personal. And if you just Google HuffPost Personal, you can find it. Again, it's a different personal essay from a different writer every day. Sometimes I write, um, but usually I'm editing. And then, 
you know, I use my social media just to kind of talk about the world around me and what I'm seeing. And um, so I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and it's just my full name, Noah Michelson. Um, and uh, yeah, I love when people email me. I love that you just showed up in my inbox. I love that you showed up in the bathroom. Like, um, <laughs> I'm all about these unexpected, just who's going to show up next? What's going to happen next? Let's go on mm -hmm. an adventure together. And I'm really, really thankful that you asked me to do this. Thank you. I don't get to talk about this stuff that often. And so it's nice to have someone who, who wants to talk about it, who's thinking about these same things um, and, and who has an audience of people who are doing the same thing. Like, that's incredible. So thank you for this. It was my pleasure. Oh, I find the magic of Tori is like this cosmic mother and she gives birth to all these children and we're, we're siblings now. So we can really yes. enjoy this connection. I love yeah. that. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations those expressions. That's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it. Be with it. And let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.